You are listening to a sermon from the First Baptist Church of Ewing, a Christ-centered church in Lewis County. If you would, though, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Psalm 27. Um, If you haven't been with us throughout this series, uh, we're doing a summer sermon series called Emotions and Devotion, uh, where we've been looking at just a selection of different psalms to see how um, our emotions, all of our emotions, can lead us to a deeper devotion to the Lord. Uh, And so that's why we've been doing the the different videos to kind of set us up for these different psalms. Um, So far, we've looked at sorrow and joy, and last week we looked at fear, and today we are going to look at confidence. Um, So we're going to do that by looking at Psalm 27, verses 1 through 14. Uh, So turn there in your Bibles, and let me pray for our time. Father, thank you for all of the psalms that you have given us. Um, Thank you just for the the deeper insights they can provide us, Father, especially when it comes to helping us understand our emotions. Uh, And Father, I pray that that you would be with us now as we dive into Psalm 27. Use your spirit just to illuminate our hearts to the truths of this text. Uh, May our hearts and lives just be transformed as a result. I ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. Uh, Hear from the word of the Lord this morning, Psalm 27, verses 1 through 14. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing that I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of my tent, of his tent, and he will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, 
and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So in a moment, we're going to get to studying that passage I just read, Psalm 27. Uh, but before we do that, I want to take a brief little pit stop over to Revelation 21. Uh, so if you've already opened your Bibles to Psalm 27, that's great. Uh, feel free to just kind of put your finger uh, on that page and, and flip over, if you would, to Revelation 21. Uh, I, I want you to see these words for yourself. All right, this is a passage that, honestly, a lot of people probably haven't read, that a lot of people probably skip past, a lot of people probably don't think very much of it. Uh, but I just want, before we get to Psalm 27, I want this passage in Revelation just to sink in for just a moment. Starting verse 7, Psalm, or sorry, Revelation 21, starting in verse 7, uh, the Lord is talking about who is ultimately going to get to spend eternity in heaven and who will not. And he says, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all of the liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, at first glance, when you read this list that John's talking about, it, it makes sense. You know, that John says that those who are detestable and those who are murderers, uh, they're going to get cast into this lake of fire. And you might think, well, well, of course, God doesn't want people like that dwelling with him for all eternity. But before John gets to the murderers, did you notice who, who's first on that list of people who are not going to get past the pearly gates? First on that list is the cowards. John says that only the conquerors will get to go to heaven. The cowards, on the other hand, will end up in hell. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, uh, that passage just hits a little closer to home to me than I'd like. I mean, I, I'm sure that, that we have all had plenty of times in our lives where we didn't feel quite as courageous as maybe we ought to have been. I know that there have been times where I, I didn't take a stand for something that I know that I should have because I let fear get in the way. And if we're being honest, I suspect that we, we've all felt that from time to time where we've all been maybe just a little bit more yellow-bellied uh, than we should have been. So this can be kind of an uncomfortable passage uh, but even though there are chapters in Revelation, you know, 21, you know, passages like that in the Bible uh, that tell us that cowards go to hell, fortunately, there are other passages in the Bible, like Psalm 27, that tells us how not to be a coward. All right, this psalm, Psalm 27 is going to speak on how God's people should and can be filled with the kind of confidence and courage that will allow them to conquer in order that they might spend eternity with God. 
So now that we've seen that verse in Revelation 21, let's look back uh, at Psalm 27. Uh, and from the verses in this passage, I want to show you uh, where our feelings of confidence should ultimately come from. Obviously, they should ultimately be rooted in the Lord, uh, but there are four ways that you can see in this passage uh, that it should be rooted in the Lord. And the first is this. Uh, as Christians, our confidence comes from seeing salvation as the source of our strength. If you're a Christian, if you want to be a more confident person, you must realize that confidence should come from seeing salvation as the ultimate source of your confidence and your strength. That's why David begins this psalm by immediately talking about salvation. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Obviously, that's a rhetorical question he's asking. David is saying that if the Lord is your light and your salvation and your stronghold, then you have nothing to fear. You can have all the confidence in the world if your confidence comes from God and the salvation that we find in him. David says then that even when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. I promise you David's not talking about cannibals here. He's not saying that his enemies are literally trying to eat at his flesh. He's simply comparing them to the likes of you know, wild beasts like a lion that might try to devour him. But since the Lord is David's salvation and his stronghold, well, he says that it's his enemies that will end up stumbling and falling, not him. Then in verse 3, uh, he kind of ups the stakes. He says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. Uh, that reminds me of the story of Samson uh, back in the book of Judges, uh, who was himself pretty much a one-man army. Uh, if you remember his story, uh, then you know that the Lord gave Samson supernatural strength through the power of the Holy Spirit so that Samson could free his people who were being oppressed by the Philistines. And to his credit, Samson did kill a lot of Philistines. Uh, at one point, we're told that he took down a thousand of them just with the jawbone of a single donkey. But a condition of him being given this kind of strength was that Samson was supposed to take what was known as a Nazarite vow. He was supposed to be a Nazarite from birth. And among other things, that this vow meant that he wasn't allowed to drink any kind of wine or even grape juice, nothing that came from the vine. Um, he also wasn't allowed to touch any dead bodies, which just as an FYI would have included the jawbone of a donkey. He wasn't supposed to touch any of that. Um, and he also uh, wasn't allowed to cut his hair. 
And, and Samson was obviously terrible uh, at keeping most of the parts of this vow, um, except for the part about cutting his hair. Uh, he did let his hair for most of his life remain long. And in God's mercy, the Lord continue to empower Samson's strength, despite all of the other foolish and even wicked things that he did. Uh, that is, until this woman named Delilah came along. Uh, Delilah was not Samson's wife. Uh, he was married to somebody else. So this should have been a red flag in and of itself. Uh, but even though Samson was already married, he fell in love with this woman nonetheless. And the, the Philistines tried to exploit her uh, and exploit this love that Samson had for her uh, by demanding that Delilah use her relationship with him to try to figure out the secret to his strength. And now why Samson was ever dumb enough to tell her, I have no idea. But one night, Samson did confess to Delilah that if she would take a razor to his hair, then that Nazarite vow would be broken and the spirit of the Lord would depart from him and he would be left powerless and weak. And that's exactly what happened. Delilah took a razor to Samson's scalp and the Philistines were easily able to capture him and put him in chains and take him away. But I love how the story of Samson ends. Uh, because it doesn't end there. It doesn't end on that note of despair. Uh, Samson gets taken to this big feast uh, that the Philistines are having. And there are thousands of people in attendance. And Samson is put on display uh, kind of as, as their entertainment for the evening. Uh, but during the festivities, in one final feat of spiritual strength, Samson cries out to the Lord. He prays that God would allow him to defeat the Philistines one more time and bring freedom to God's people. And the Lord grants his request and Samson regains that supernatural strength in that moment. And he is able to topple over the pillars in that temple, uh, causing the whole roof to cave in which meant that he had to sacrifice himself. But in doing so, uh, he killed all of the Philistines that were present, including uh, many of their military leaders and their rulers. Now, I take the time to tell you that story uh, in order that we can all better understand the source of our strength as God's people. You might have heard me go on and on about Samson, and you might assume that what I'm trying to tell you is that his hair was ultimately the source of his strength. But if you read the story and you really study the story, it really wasn't. That there wasn't anything magical about the follicles growing out of his head. That the real source of Samson's strength was the Spirit of God. And the grace of God. It was God's spirit that gave him that strength to begin with. And then even after Samson broke the Nazarite vow and caused God's spirit to depart from him. When Samson finally did cry out to God again, praying that the Lord would remember him and come back into his life. Then it was God's grace that became the new source for Samson's strength. 
through his mercy and grace, God renewed Samson's power and his strength. And it's the salvation that has been offered to us through God's grace that is our source of strength as well. And it was also David's source of strength here in Psalm 27. That, that's what gave David the ability to have confidence, even though an entire army might encamp against him. It's like the lyrics go uh, from one of my favorite hymns. If you're familiar with the hymn, How Firm a Foundation, the last verse of that hymn says, The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Just let that sink in. That soul, though all hell shall endeavor to shake, I will never, no, never, no, never forsake. I mean, there are few words that can give you such confidence as that. This is a, a source of strength that no razor could ever shave away. All right, this is the kind of strength that can't even temporarily be taken from you like it was for Samson. Right? Even if Satan himself was camped against you, if you're a follower of Jesus, then God's word says that not even Satan could prevail. So, so if you want to be able to walk down the street with your head held high, feeling like you have the confidence to take on anything that life throws your way, well then start by seeing your salvation as the ultimate source of your spiritual strength. But now there's also a second source of confidence we see uh, in this psalm. Uh, because confidence also comes from living in the presence of the Lord. If you feel like you are a person that kind of lacks confidence in their life, you can find more of it by seeking to live in the presence of the Lord. Look at verse 4 in our text. Uh, David writes, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all of the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Now, David was a man with more than his fair share of enemies. And if he could just be granted one wish, you, you might think that it would have been to have a larger army or, or more weapons to fight his enemies with. But that's not what David asks for. He says that the one thing he desires above all else is to dwell in the house of the Lord in order that he might gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. It reminds me of another Old Testament story, not another one about Samson, uh, but about Moses. Uh, Moses, just like David, was a man after God's own heart. And he also was a man who wanted to be in the presence 
of God's glory. He wanted to, to glimpse God's glory. If you're familiar uh, with this particular story, it comes from Exodus 33 and, and 34. Um, the Lord is speaking to Moses and he tells Moses that he's not going to permit him to see the face of God. Because no one, the Lord says, could look upon the face of God and still live. But he does grant Moses his request at letting Moses get a glimpse of his back. So God, kind of a, a strange story, God takes Moses and he hides him in the cleft of a rock. And he puts his hands over his eyes until he passes by. And then after he has passed him, uh, Moses is able to open up his eyes and, and get at least a glimmer of God's glory as he sees his back. Now, shortly after this experience, I love what happens next. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai to be with the Israelites. And um, starting in Exodus 34, verse 29, we're told that as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And Aaron and all of the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to be near him. So because Moses had been in the presence of the Lord, uh, his face looked radioactive. Right? He, he hadn't even seen God's face. He, he just caught a glimpse of his back, and yet it caused him to glow with, with, to such an extent that it made others feel uncomfortable just being around him. So, so the one thing that David desired was to be with God in the Lord's house. And the one thing that Moses wanted was to glimpse God's glory. And when he did, it literally changed his physical appearance and it literally started to, to make him glow. So, so the question that I have for you this morning is do you have the same desire that Moses and David had? Because their confidence came from living and dwelling in the presence of the Lord. And so I have to ask, is that where your confidence resides? Is that your greatest desire? Not just to love the Lord because of the benefits he can give you, but to love the Lord just because of who he is. I want to read to you what one commentator wrote about uh, this passage that we're studying this morning in Psalm 27. He said, uh, what if having God himself doesn't seem very appealing? If that's the case, then there is something wrong with you. When a man has no appetite, you assume he is not feeling well, that there is something wrong with his body. When a man has no appetite to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, there is something wrong with his soul. David had an appetite for God, and we should too. So the greater your hunger and your appetite is for God, then the greater your confidence will be as well. You, you, need, you don't need a bunch of stuff in order to be satisfied. 
Rather, you will be able to look on the goodness of God and you will begin to trust that he is all you need. And the more you you have that appetite for God, the more you'll realize that not only is he all you need, but really he is all you even want in this life. So, So confidence comes from seeing salvation as the source of your strength. And it comes from living in the presence of the Lord. But third, confidence also comes from being sheltered in the Lord. David says that the Lord is his salvation. And it's his salvation that has let him come into the presence of the Lord. Uh, And now it's being in the presence of the Lord that will allow him to be sheltered and protected by the Lord. Look at verse 5. David writes, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. So let's just talk for a moment about how David understands God versus how so many of us often view or see him. Too many people see God as nothing more uh, than just like an amusement park ride. He's a good distraction uh, from an otherwise depressing world, but he's kind of a short-lived distraction. You might be amused by him for a season, but then you move on to ride the next ride or see the next spectacle. But, but the Bible's picture of God is not just as some amusement park fun house, but as an almighty fortress. So you don't come into the Lord's house just to be entertained. You come here so that you might find shelter from the storms of life. Now, I'm sure we've all, you know, met or heard about different uh, doomsday preppers uh, who go out and build like a bomb shelter in their backyard because they think the world is getting ready to end. Um, And though I'm not suggesting that we go and follow suit and build our own shelters, Um, I have to admit that I'm always thoroughly impressed uh, by a lot of their plans. I mean, those guys literally think of everything. You you walk into a shelter, uh, they have everything that they need to survive. Uh, Sealed cans of food that aren't going to spoil, clean water, beds, showers, even a generator to run it all. You know, some of those guys could go down into a bunker uh, and they could live the rest of their lives down there without ever having to come back out. And again, I'm not suggesting that you go out this afternoon and try to build your own, uh, but I do think that there is a spiritual lesson that can be learned there, which is that God himself is a shelter that contains all we need to survive. Which isn't to say that we should just keep God tucked away uh, in your backyard just in case of an emergency, Rather, it's to say that ever since sin came into this world, humanity has already been in an ongoing state of emergency. And if you haven't yet taken refuge in God, then you need to get there fast. You you should listen to the sirens of the gospel urging you to go and take shelter in the Lord and to take shelter from the storms of sin. You need to understand that within the protection of God, he has all you need to survive. 
I, I know I've mentioned this story before, uh, but there was a pastor uh, who lived in London during World War II, uh, whose name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Um, and there was one uh, Sunday morning where he was praying during service, and the Germans began dropping bombs uh, all across London. And some of those bombs came pretty close to hitting the church where they were worshiping, uh, so close, in fact, that as Martin Lloyd-Jones was praying, uh, plaster began to fall from the ceiling in their sanctuary. Yet, the congregation all stayed in their pews, and Martin Lloyd-Jones finished his prayer, uh, and he went right into preaching without even missing a beat. And the reason all those people didn't flee from the church and go take shelter somewhere in, in a bomb shelter uh, is because they understood that more important than having a physical shelter from the Nazis was being able to find a spiritual shelter in the Lord. So, so let me ask you another question this morning. Where do you take refuge when those bombs begin to fall? When the day of trouble arrives, like David calls it, where do you go? Do you hurry into the safety of the sanctuary and surround yourself with other believers? Do you shelter yourself in God's word? Or do you try and take refuge in the things of this world? Do you isolate yourself? Do you take comfort in that quart of ice cream and that junk food in your fridge after a stressful day? Do you find your shelter in alcohol or unhealthy relationships or even just through mindlessly scrolling through social media on your phone trying to tune everything else out? Whatever it is that you do, if you're not seeking safety in the shelter of God, it means that you're still standing out in the rain. You are out in the open. You are a sitting duck all the while as the enemy's bombs are falling around you. So, so my plea for you is to drop whatever it is you're doing and to run to God. Reclaim your confidence by finding it in the shelter of the Lord. A lot of people I know have long since lost their sense of confidence because they have just feel like they've been beaten and battered by all of the things that have been happening in their lives. But the only way to, to reverse that is not by just trying to have a thicker skin. It, it comes from sheltering yourself in the bomb-proof bunker that is Christ. So, so we've seen now that confidence comes from seeing salvation as the source of your strength and from living in the presence of the Lord and from being sheltered in the Lord. But finally this morning, I, I want us to also see that confidence also comes from choosing courage even when you're afraid. Confidence also comes from choosing courage, even when you're afraid. We're not going to have time uh, to look at all of the rest of the verses in this passage, uh, but I do want to just highlight a few for you. Uh, verse 10, David says that he has been 
forsaken, even by his own family. Verse 12, uh, he also describes how false witnesses have risen against him, uh, breathing out violence. Uh, but then despite all of David's uh, concerns and you know, his circumstances, the, the psalm doesn't end with him just wallowing in his despair. Look at verses 13 and 14. David says, But I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take your heart, take heart, take, or let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Now, despite the difficulties that David is facing, notice what he chooses to do. He still chooses to believe that he will one day get to look on the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. It means he still believes that he is going to get to spend eternity with God. I love that David doesn't just follow his heart and let it tell him what to do. He tells his heart what to do. He commands it to be strong and to take courage, which means that courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is choosing to trust God and take action, even despite your fears. When I was selecting the different psalms to study for this sermon series, I almost chose to call this one courage. You know, we looked at the fear uh, with the emotion of fear last week. So I originally figured, well, we talked about fear. Now we'll talk about courage. Uh, But the more I've studied this passage and others like it, I've realized that courage in and of itself is not an emotion. Confidence is. Courage is an action. And that feeling of confidence comes as a result of that action. You know, the history of the world is filled with a lot of timid people who were ultimately able to triumph. I mean, you don't even have to look further than the Bible to see that one to be true. Practically every page of Scripture is filled with fearful people accomplishing fearless things through the Lord's strength. I mean, Moses was a stuttering old man. When God told him to lead his people out of Egypt, Moses said, I am not eloquent. I am slow of speech and tongue. When Isaiah was called to be a prophet, the first response that he said, if you remember that, Isaiah chapter 6, he said, Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. Or you can even think about the example of Gideon, who was another judge like Samson. When the angel of the Lord found him and commanded him to lead a rebellion to free his people from the Midianites, Gideon was hiding in a wine press. And his response was, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So the Bible is not a book filled with heroes. Its pages are covered with those who were cowards. But they were cowards who did some pretty courageous things. Not because of any confidence that they had in themselves, but because they were able to find confidence in the Lord. 
And because of that confidence, they could choose courage, even despite still being afraid. So let's go back then to that verse that we started with in Revelation 21, where John says that the cowardly will be cast down into that lake of fire. I mean, if all cowards go to hell, surely that would include the likes of Moses and Isaiah and Gideon, not to mention a whole lot of draft dodgers who uh, tried to skip out on a whole lot of wars that our country has fought. I mean, that list would probably even include a lot of people like you and me who aren't always as courageous as we ought to be. But I don't think that John wrote that passage to say that all draft dodgers are bound for hell. Rather, this is what it means. First, think about the most courageous act in human history. That would be when Jesus took on the full uh, force of God's wrath upon himself at the cross. So that our relationship with the Lord might be restored. And Jesus said that for us to become his followers, it would require quite a bit of courage on our part as well. Because Jesus said that all of those who would become his disciples, he says that they must take up their own crosses and live lives of self-sacrifice. So it's only the courageous who will follow Jesus And it's only the cowards who won't. Because being a coward means that you seek only after your own self-preservation. The courageous like Jesus, they sacrifice themselves for others, but cowards sacrifice for the sake of themselves. They sacrifice others for the sake of themselves. So if you're too cowardly to take up your cross, And live sacrificially, sacrificing for your family and for the family of God, then the Bible says that you're too cowardly to be a Christian. And it's those kinds of cowards that John is saying will spend eternity separated from the Lord. But but for those whose confidence comes from courageously choosing to follow Christ, then this is the kind of bold confidence that can never be taken away. This is the kind of confidence that you can feel even when you feel afraid. This is the kind of confidence that the Bible calls us to have. Let me pray. Father, just thank you so much for, for passages like this that are designed to boost our confidence, not our confidence in ourselves, but our confidence in you. Father, if we are ever our own source of strength, then our strength will eventually fail us. We are guaranteed of that. But if you are where we derive our strength and our energy and our power to keep enduring through the trials of life, then we, have, we can have every bit of confidence that you will not fail us ever. So I pray that you would be the hope, that hope for everybody who is in this room today. And if they haven't yet trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, then Father, I pray that today would be the day that they would do just that. 
And I ask all of this in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.